Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hello again from Denver Seminary. This is Engage 360. I'm Don Payne. Glad you're with us again. If you think about objects that have shaped culture profoundly, uh, there is one object that uh, occurs to me as right at the top of that list, and that object is the mirror. Uh, if you, <laughs> I don't know when mirrors were invented. I have not done any study of the technological evolution of the mirror. Um, no, in some fashion, they've been around for a long time, and they have many, uh, many beneficial uses, uh, all the way from helping us uh, make sure our clothes are on correctly to maybe finding untoward objects in our teeth to uh, helping us see things we can't see from the other side of something. Many beneficial uses. But if you think about the function of the mirror in our culture, uh, you'll realize they are everywhere and that I'm going to generalize here that every one of us or most every one of us find ourselves fascinated with looking at ourselves in a mirror. Um, now, that may be a gross generalization, but uh, mirrors are everywhere and they shape us profoundly. Uh, even uh, in 1979, Christopher Lash wrote a bestseller called The Culture of Narcissism, which examined how American culture has been profoundly shaped, uh, at least since the 1950s, by an almost pathological narcissism. Of course, we get that word narcissism from the ancient Greek myth of Narcissus, who was enchanted by his own reflection in a pool of water. Uh, now, any, any redemptive engagement with the world really, really demands that we have an increasing understanding of our world and how it needs redemption. And if, um, if narcissism, self-absorption in one way or another, is such an in, uh, intrinsic part of our culture, the water we swim in, we need to give a little bit of attention to that. I was recently reminded of, I guess, I don't know if it's a fable or a joke, where an old fish swims up alongside two younger fish and says to them, how's the water, boys? And the two younger fish say, what's water? So we're, we're often not even aware of the, of the culture and the, that we uh, inhabit and our role in it, how it's shaped us, and how, in fact, it needs redemption. So with all that said, we're really privileged again this week to be joined by our colleague, Dr. Ron Welch, who is Associate Dean of our Counseling Division and has, um, has given a lot of attention to this. Ron, good to have you back. Glad to be with you. Thanks for asking me to share some time with you. I think last time you and I chatted on the podcast, we talked a lot about baseball. I'm not, I don't remember what else we talked about, but I remember the baseball conversation. As long as the Dodgers are mentioned, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> well, Ron uh, has given, as I mentioned, a lot of attention to the subject of narcissism um, and, and probably can correct some misconceptions that float around about it and help us do a little bit of a deeper dive into it. Ron, first of all, what what really defines or characterizes narcissism, at least from a clinic, clinical vantage point? Well, initially you would think about terms like self-absorption and self-aggrandizement. Uh, You'd think about um, the idea of someone who thinks about nothing but themselves yeah. in the narcissist tradition. But in reality, most of narcissism is separated from what we call antisocial people. Um, as you're aware, I spent a lot of time in the federal prison system, not as a 
inmate, but as a psychologist. Not as a resident. Yeah. Not as a resident. <laughs> but I did meet a lot of narcissistic antisocial people, and I started realizing there's a big difference. Uh, antisocial people really enjoy the pain they inflict on others. Huh. They're fine with other people getting hurt. And as some of the criminals I met in the prison system would say, if they didn't want to be a victim of a crime, they shouldn't have been there. Hmm. It's, 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 it's an outward projection that everything is everyone else's fault, and I can do whatever I want, and nobody really cares and should care because I get to get what I want. So then life becomes about as much power, sex, control, um, money as you can get. Narcissism is more a compensatory thing. And by that I mean rather than actually believing it, you're making up for not believing it. Hmm. So let me give you an example. If, if you have a scared little boy that thinks they're not good enough at a sport, they're going to try to tell everybody how they are the starting pitcher on their baseball team when they haven't played in the last three games. If you're an antisocial kind of person, you're going to go out and be the person that beats the other team down because that's how you prove your authority or your control. So one of the misconceptions in society about narcissism is that those people are significantly um, uh, strong in self-esteem and love themselves and think they're God's gift to everybody. In reality, most of them Just are the scared. Just the opposite? Anxious, worried, um, and trying to make up for that by putting on a, a show for everyone else that creates the outward image of control. Huh. Well, I know that narcissism... In, in whatever form, whatever expression, has become the subject of quite a bit of research, clinical mm-hmm. research. Um, and even within ministry settings, uh, narcissism has become uh, an object of inquiry because of how it seems to impact people in ministry settings. Why, mm-hmm. wh- why has this become such a focus of research? Well, if you think about how churches operate, we have a, a CEO kind of mentality that's been applied to the church, right? So we have operating officers, and we have financial chief officers, and we have people that are running administrative pastoral roles. Yeah. It's a yeah. business, yeah. right? And at least in, in larger churches. Uh, and there are large members of, uh, numbers of staff members and large businesses and organizations that have to be interacted with. So decisions have to be made, and a lot of times they're made from the top down. And that creates a scenario where if someone is in a church in a position of authority as a board chair or a, um, a, a executive pastor, then it becomes very easy for them to be the person people look to to make the decisions. And before you know it, it's not God's church, it's Don's church. Mm. And so then narcissism and the desire to prove that you're really good at what you do, that God placed you in the right position— um, I've talked with pastors who even feel like they have to appear competent at all costs, because if they don't, they're letting the congregation down, they're not going to be the right role model. This is why pastors who get in trouble and end up in, in a variety of different um, experiences of sin won't talk to anybody about it, won't get help, because they have to appear competent. And Got to maintain the, the persona, the yeah, image? Yeah, the image, I mean, because they feel like that's what the congregation expects, and that's what they're supposed to do, and that's what God expects. Hmm. So then if you're also narcissistic and you need to do that, it's not that you want to control everyone or that you really feel that's what God may even want from you, but it's the only way you know to stay in control. And it scares the heck out of you to think about letting another team make a decision, because what if that decision's wrong and then it reflects poorly on you? 
then other people will think you don't do your job well. Is it is it also in some respect a, a sort of uh, reinforcement of an image that leaders need to have of themselves? To, to go back to your previous comment, you're, to, to kind of acquire what they want to be true of themselves? Mm-hmm. Well, you, you, you've got an opening right there to go back to baseball, so I'm not going to pass okay. it. I'm not going to pass it up. <laughs> never never as, pass as it As a coach, up. I mean, one of the things you want a pitcher to do when they go out there is you want them to know they're going to be successful. You want a batter to walk up to the plate. They may know they're going to strike out seven out of ten times, but you want them to think this is the time they'll hit the home run. And it's all about picturing success. And that's true for a lot of people in ministry as well. They want to see what success looks like. They want to believe that, you know, the church they're, they're planting is going to grow and everything's going to be great. And yet on any given Saturday, they may be worried about Sunday and how many people are going to show up and not thinking it's going to go well. So then they've got to get back into the, the, the salesman mentality and think really positive things. So our identity gets tied to that. Completely. Especially if everyone else around you is telling you that's what they expect. And then you get into all the concepts that we'll talk about, I'm sure, in a few minutes here related to how submission fits into that and headship and leadership and expectations. And suddenly it's really hard to get out of that, uh, that merry-go-round that you find yourself on. Well, how does that end up impacting uh, people on the other end of a narcissistic leader? Well, full disclosure, if I want to talk about this, I have to talk about my own story to some degree and share a little bit about why I understand this topic so well. Um, I I call myself a recovering narcissist. It's easier to describe it that way. But every day um, when I wake up, I have to fight the urge to make certain other people know that I'm okay, that Mm. I'm good enough. Mm. Um, Even though I've had a lot of success in a lot of ways over my life, I've always questioned myself and I've always wondered if it's good enough. enough. Never enough. Never enough. And um, my wife would be the first one to tell you that the anxiety and the worry about failing, about not succeeding, is part of what defines me. And so I have to constantly be, if not perfect, at least striving for perfection. Uh, A lot of people have called me a type AAA personality because I tend to just keep trying to overachieve because maybe then I would feel that my family and my colleagues and my, my God are satisfied. Um, but it's, mm. it's never, you never, you never achieve that. So you're always trying to do the next thing. And that's, that's the life of a narcissist. It's, it's an intricately tied to anxiety because it's fear of not succeeding. And anti, that's why I mentioned antisocial personality because those folks aren't worried about anything. They're quite happy with whatever happens and they assume it'll go fine and they're not worried about anything. Uh, uh. Well, how, how does that then affect uh, people who have to be around uh, or have to be on the receiving end, as it were, of narcissists. It's how does really, that, and how, do, how does it affect organizations? What, what does it do? What's the ripple effect of narcissism? It's so hard because everyone else sometimes is trying to protect you or trying to, to, to give you feedback that will make you feel good enough because they can sense, they see the outer image and they see how well you're trying to perform. And they often see people performing extremely well. You look at narcissists who are in church settings and often they have huge congregations and the system is running great and yet they're spending their evenings when they're by themselves trying to figure out what else they can do to make it better. And so other people are never able to relax. They're always trying to prevent you from being anxious or worried. My wife will, will tell you that one of the hardest parts about 35 years with me is that she's, she's always trying to think, what might Ron think and how might he react and how could I maybe prevent that from being a bad thing? 
Okay. And that's not a fun way to live life. Okay. And so yeah. I'm, I've learned with, with my professional roles, with personal roles as a therapist, I've learned that I have to be incredibly aware of my tendency to need to be right uh. and to need to have things go well. Because my mom, God bless her, she was a, a wonderful woman, but she, the glass was half empty and draining rapidly, right? I mean, she all could see time. all the things that would go wrong around the corner. And I learned really well and sometimes was able to prevent some bad things, which was probably not good. <laughs> and so a lot of times narcissists are trying to just avoid that bad thing. They're working as hard as they can to prevent uh, a Sunday when only 40 people show up. Or they're trying to prevent that situation where uh, a youth ministry doesn't thrive and then they feel, well, if I'd only found the right person, maybe it would have. And I just need to keep checking on everything they're doing. So you'll find people around narcissists will always think that they're micromanaging or they're aware of everything. So I have to be very, very careful in my life to not micromanage, to trust people, to choose and select people who are working with me that are going to handle things well and then when I get the urge to say, I should really check on that, it's kind of like in the prison system, I would always check locks. Okay. So every now and then I have to say, you know what, I'm not going to check. Well, so I, you, you, you use the spiritual discipline of not checking. Not checking. Exactly. <laughs> it is. It's a spiritual discipline. Uh, because if I check, I'm not trusting God. You're feeding the monster. I'm feeding the monster. Yeah. Yep. Now, I'm no psychologist, obviously, but it sounds like that the the anxiety that generates that narcissism or the anxiety, the fear that's... that's um, uh, that that is the engine mm-hmm. for all of that. Then gets kind of projected onto the um, the the e- ecologies, the relationships, the the corporate mm-hmm. or communal settings. Then that that populate uh, the world around a narcissist. So they be, do they become anxious systems? Do they become anxious communities? Then it depends on the level of awareness the individual has about their own limitations. Right. So if you're able to let people know this is how I may end up being experienced and you may see this. And here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to come talk to me and say, you know what? You you seem like you're pretty anxious and worried and you're trying to control everything. And you can't do that because you told us not to let you do that. So knock it off. And if your if your team feels the permission to do that and starts realizing, wow, so this pastor is going to say, this is something I struggle with. Just like a pastor who might struggle with depression or anger is better off letting the flock know, here's what I might do when I, here's what sin looks like from me. Mm. Then the, the, the congregation can say, wow, in a meeting I can tell the pastor to knock it off? <laughs> That'd be cool. Yeah. And of course, we could extrapolate that out to leaders in a variety of settings, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you'll see that in politics. You'll see it in in. CEOs in business, the best CEOs are the ones who learn their own limitations, allow people around them to be the mirror for them because they can't, you use the analogy of a mirror, I'm my own worst mirror. Hmm. A narcissist cannot see as much of themselves because they need other people to have the permission to say, you know what, here's the mirror and here's what you need to be So what of. a narcissist sees in the mirror is never the true picture. That's right. That's right. It's even with even, someone. Even if they're obsessed with it or absorbed in it, it's never the clear picture. If you've ever worked with folks with eating disorders, they will draw a picture of their body image on the wall, what they think their body looks like, and then they'll stand up in the middle of it, and the body Mm. image will be totally different Hmm. than everything they know to be true. And that research has supported our understanding that our own image of ourselves is some of the worst 
self-assessment because we're just not good at seeing our own weaknesses and sin. Well, let's talk about self-image because that that's another very prominent conversation and a and a really crucial concern is having having a healthy self-image. How does how does narcissism relate to the kind of or or, or differ from the kind of self-awareness that we would consider to be healthy and normal? It's really interesting because the research is is pretty clear about how much consistency there is between those who are depressed and those who are narcissistic. Because in a lot of cases, you would think narcissists are self-confident and they think they've got the world at their fingers. And in reality, it's a lot like a depressed person who is so scared or an anxious person who's so worried that they don't think things are going to go well and they're pretty much waiting for the other shoe to drop. And that's kind of what it's like in terms of self-image. There's a real lack of evidence-based truth, if that makes sense. You can have a really good day and a narcissist will look at that and say, yeah, but, and and, and there's always this caveat of what could have been better. And so narcissistic people can't sit and, and enjoy God's blessings, for instance. They would have to say, hmm, I should have done something different. And the problem with that, of course, is that it's like the quarterback. They get way too much credit for success and way too much blame for yeah, failure. Yeah. And a lot of what, what happens for narcissists is treatment and intervention, a lot of times, which is really hard, is looking at how little control they actually have and saying, you know, that, that great success you had with that sale in your business the other day, that really wasn't all about you anyway. There was a whole team of people involved. There was all sorts of luck God's providence was, was, was at work from the beginning. And you're not only going to blame yourself too much for your failures, you're going to give yourself too much credit. And, and then when you, when you can help someone take that away and say, I'm living in a broken world that's unpredictable and things can go wrong and I maybe can't prevent it in any way, shape, or form, that's incredibly fearful. But it's true. But it can, be, it can be kind of liberating as well Very if, much if, so. if we can find our way into that, exactly. that spot. And that, right. that really opens... We'll come back to this maybe in just a moment, but that really opens a sort of gospel segue onto all yeah. of this because it makes me think of the the reality, the thickness of grace, mm-hmm. and and our capacity actually to live by grace to receive right. to receive what comes as a gift of God. And I mean, I, I've thought a lot about uh, this theme of grace, and of course, our English word grace comes from the Latin word. Grazia, um, from which we get other words like gratuity, gratuitous. Mm. Uh, the French have a great word for that, largesse, just mm. the, the, the bounty and the um, sort of openness of spirit mm-hmm. that we, theologically, we see coming from God our way. Undeserved, unmerited, unpredictable, unmanageable, incalculable. We just learn to receive that. And it strikes me that the, these anxious, narcissistic tendencies we're talking about always work against grace, a, a life sustained by and receptive of grace. Mm-hmm. And that, that may be maybe studies in grace and doing a, you know, putting a drill into grace may be one of the best antidotes and mm-hmm. um, remedies for narcissism and the anxiety that generates it. I mean, is that fair? I agree. I agree completely. It's all about trust, right? And if you can't trust other people, you can't trust God, you have to be the solution. Then accepting grace becomes very difficult because it's sort of like, I got a gift and I didn't do anything about it and I had nothing 
to do with it and no control over it, and I didn't earn it. I'm just well, called to enjoy it, just right. receive it and enjoy it. That's that's anathema to a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which ironically, I mean, sadly, ironically, can become um, a grace can become merely another theological word on paper, yeah. even that gets talked about a lot. But the reality of that, the substance of that, is very can be very remote. I suppose. Yeah. Are are there ways that narcissism maybe gets gets hidden or masked so that it's kind of difficult to detect and 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 then it goes unaddressed and becomes even more toxic so does that I, happen i think this is on a continuum from passive to aggressive and so aggressive narcissism those folks who will show you in your face what you need to know so they'll be able to convince you that they're competent that's pretty easy to see it's not that hidden it's front door kind of stuff. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be so competent, you're going to see it. I'm going to tell you about it. And sometimes it's even verbal where the person is going out of their way to tell you about their successes. But across the continuum, we get into passive aggressive and passive behaviors, things that are backdoor kind of entry places where someone will do things like um, try to control you by manipulating at a level you don't know about talking to other people to make certain that they vote a certain way in a meeting or saying something about another competitor who might be a threat to the narcissist and might make him or her look incompetent and making certain they cut that person down without the so there's all these passive kind of behaviors that are passive aggressive at times but they're not direct aggression because they're trying to make things turn out the way I think they need to turn out to salvage my image of myself it's still controlling okay it's still manipulative, and it's still aimed at comp- competing or, or finding a way to prove to others that you're competent and, and good at what you do, but it's not as direct and aggressive. And so I think those things are sometimes harder to, to see and be aware of, uh, especially those who get really good at it, because they're masters at hiding it and finding ways to not have to deal with the pushback that they would get if they were kind of aggressive in their narcissism. Mm. What's on the other end of that spectrum? I, I, I see it as, as kind of passive on one end, aggressive on the other, and passive-aggressive in the middle. So it kind of goes across the board from the degree to which you are more than willing to take the risk that you're going to push directly back at the other person, even in a discussion, all the way to the passive side where they may actually choose to just sit back and say, I guess I really am as helpless as I thought. Maybe I'm not competent. I guess I should just give up. And then this is why I know it doesn't make sense, but a lot of narcissistic folks are depressed Mm. because at times they just give up. They're like, well, if I can't succeed at winning, then this is where I just leave the game. Mm -hmm. And they'll do things like get sick or ill and leave a job. They'll quit the job before someone could find out they're not perfect. Um, They'll find ways to self-sabotage and blow up an opportunity even though they could have probably succeeded because it's easier to sabotage themselves than wait for someone else to expose them. That's the whole scared little boy syndrome. It's yeah. also why people put on such an image yeah. because it prevents someone from finding out. There, there's a whole term called narcissistic injury in the literature, which is basically when a narcissist is exposed. Somebody shows them to be fallible, and then they're overwhelmed by that, and it's, it's, it throws them into a tailspin that can lead to a lot of depression and, and sadness. Well, it sounds like this um, this whole phenomenon of narcissism has a far deeper and more complex root system than might 
meet the naked eye, um, which which could be even more depressing. And, uh, you know, many of us could, could hear this and think, uh, wow, now I'm worse off than even I, I thought I was. And, you know, and, and I'm an, am I a narcissist? And in which ways am, am I a narcissist that I didn't even know it? And, and maybe we are in, in a lot of ways. Who knows? But when we bring the gospel back into the conversation, in, in one respect, that could um, that could feel even more indicting because now the gospel's shining the light into mm-hmm. the, the depths and the nuances of how broken I am, which, which is true. But what would, how, how would you bring the gospel into this as an encouragement to people who struggle with narcissism, even if they didn't know it or name it as such? You know, a lot of this has to do with your understanding of words like submission and headship and leadership and trying to figure out what does God actually expect of people in their Christian walk. And I think the passages that have to do with humbleness and, and the broken condition of man, the fact that you're not supposed to be God and you're not supposed to be perfect, and, and we need a Savior for a reason, help people understand that their bar that they set is so far above what God sets that they, 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 they forget that God's offering to, to come down to our world and redeem us and help us cr- create a, an ability to, to want to be sanctified and want to move toward a place where we're closer to being like God. The desire to be good is awesome. God wants us to try to be godly, but he doesn't want us to be God. And, and so what, what we try to do is, in my opinion, the gospel provides an opportunity to say, yeah, there's a story that explains why you're broken. And it's not because you failed or you're a bad human being. It's because you're human. And by definition of that, if you learn your weaknesses and you learn the ways that you could be an example to others, and you could say, you know what? If I know this is a weakness and I wake up today saying my goal is to do as much as I can to be as much the way I think God would want me to be as possible— then you succeed already just by trying and, and investing in being a godly man or woman. I think where we get into trouble is when we start seeing these terms um, like head of the household as having a bar that we have to meet, and if we don't, we've failed God as a husband and as a father and as a leader. Um, if, if, if roles in leadership in a church or a seminary lead us to miss the fact that we have opportunities to have relationships that are are awesome and God-honoring and developmental and growing, then we, we miss the whole point. We're too busy trying to be perfect instead of saying, God, I'm here. Show me. What do you want me to do today? And, and I think that's where the gospel allows us an opportunity to realize that this is not an overwhelming problem. This is just humanity. This is, for narcissists, this is, this is their cross to bear. But everybody has crosses to bear. Mm-hmm. Everybody needs mm-hmm. to work on things that God wants them to improve on. That, that's the Christian journey, right? I would think that if we could own the, the darkness and the evil that lurks at the core of all of this and realize that that's where and why grace is so absolutely essential, um, that, that God meets us, as you mentioned a moment ago, God comes down and meets us even there, yeah. uh, touches us and grabs hold of us even there unilaterally. Um, even, you know, even before we have the good sense or the willingness to reach out and receive that, um, 
you know, we're not we're not trying to get ourselves as far as we can go and then grace uh, or make ourselves worthy of grace, as some some folks will put it. Uh, it it's it meets us at the bottom, mm-hmm. carries us all the way. And well, that 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 is so counterintuitive, especially <laughs> to a, you know, a productive, a, a productivity oriented culture like mm-hmm. ours is uh, to, to think that there is no way we can pull ourselves out of the the, the mud of all this, but, you know, pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, as right. the saying goes. Right. Um, but 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 grace comes to us so counterintuitively that um, once we can get our minds around that, it's so liberating. If you, if you can do that, you can also trust God. You stop relying on yourself to solve every problem. And that's where a lot of, a lot of us get into trouble when we, you know, it's weird. You think of words like submission and you think it, it really is something about one person giving in to another person's will. You know, we've just kind of transmuted that word so much from the original meaning. But if we think about serving under each other, serving for each other, being servant leaders, then a lot of the narcissist problems go away because they don't have to try to fix everything in that day or prevent bad things from happening. They can just say, isn't it cool that I've got a guy who cares about me and shows up and is here with me? And I can just kind of say, I'm going to do my best, but if I don't, God's got it. God's it's grace, God's grace undergirds. That makes it so wonderful. Yeah, doesn't it? And yet you can go through your day and miss, miss all of that, and it's just yeah. it's the message that the gospel offers to us. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that a conversation about narcissism was going to get us around to grace, but I'm really glad it did. <laughs> That's the place it belongs. Ron, Absolutely. thanks. You're welcome. We're, uh, we're always always benefited by uh, by your insights. Dr. Ron Welch from our counseling division. Um, folks, uh, let me remind you that all of our podcast episodes are available in transcript form. If you would like to go back to one and revisit it in written form, you can find that on our website. Just go to denverseminary.edu and look for the podcast link. You'll find all of our episodes linked there, and each one should have a uh, icon there, which will allow you to download a full written transcript of the episode. I uh, want to give a word of thanks and shout out to those in our communications department, Andrea Wayand and Rochelle Smith, who work so diligently behind the scenes to make this happen. And as always, Krista Ebert, who is our masterful soundboard engineer and editor uh, to get these things whipped up and into shape for you to listen to. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us with comments or questions, you can do that at podcast at denverseminary.edu. And if you are listening on one of the popular podcast platforms, we would really love it if uh, you would take a moment to give us a rating or a review. That is always really helpful to us. Uh, Until next time, I'm Don Payne. This is Engage 360. Hope you'll check back with us and uh, pray for Denver Seminary. Uh, We always value your... uh, Uh, support of whatever kind, uh, and certainly your prayers for us in what God has called us to do. Take care.